Our first scripture reading is from Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through to 16. Romans 2. In the uh, previous verse, the Apostle wrote that there's no partiality with God and then he goes on from verses 12 through to 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Would you then turn please to... Genesis 2, situation where uh, Adam and Eve did not have the, uh, the law in quite the same form that uh, Moses did and the uh, people of Israel at that time, or that the apostles did and the people of the New Testament, but uh, certainly they had the law and uh, we'll have some sense of that as we work through our text from Genesis 2. Verses 10, I'll read from verses 10 to 17. Text for the sermon is verses 15 to 17. And then following that, I'll read from the Westminster Confession, chapter 7, articles 1 and 2, and chapter 19, article 1. So from Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God, and this is our text, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Then uh, from the Westminster Confession, should find that in your bulletins. Chapter 7, Articles 1 and 2 first. Article 1. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, 
which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. And then Article 2, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and to him, to his posterity, upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. And then in chapter 19 and Article 1, God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it and endued him with power and ability to keep it. And uh, this is a... uh, a somewhat difficult uh, subject and uh, on a warm afternoon I guess it's hard to uh, focus and keep focused on especially those more difficult matters but uh, let us pray that God will be with us as we hear his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father we pray that uh, you would help us, that you would keep us from being influenced by those who hate your precepts and have no interest or belief in your promises. Teach us, on the contrary, to love your word more and more. And therefore, Father, will you also teach us to listen intently, even to those truths that we may have heard many times before, but also to those more in-depth matters that may be harder to grasp. Father, help us to have that focus and that intentness uh, also when... um, Conditions are not so conducive in warmer weather or when we are not feeling so well or when we are weary. We pray that you would help us to do our best to give attention to the teaching of your word once again this afternoon. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, uh, we are going to be considering this afternoon the covenant of works, as it is sometimes called the arrangement that God made with Adam and his posterity. While Adam and Eve too were in a state of purity or innocence in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall, the promise that they would enjoy life was so long as they rendered perfect obedience to God. A matter therefore of uh, their works, something that involved very much their works in that way, and hence the term covenant of works. Though there is some debate about this, there's some debate about it being called a covenant, because the biblical words for covenant in Old and New Testament imply the existence of sin, and the existence of the fall and of curse. Because a covenant is a kind of peace treaty, especially the word used in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, The word means a kind of last will and testament, which implies that death is in the picture. So both words, the need for a peace treaty and the existence of death, imply the existence of sin and fall. And partly because of that, earlier reformers, such as Calvin, tended to refrain from calling this arrangement a covenant. John Murray, he may be, the name may be known to some of you, he was a professor at Westminster Seminary. John Murray also questioned the use of the word works 
He preferred to put the emphasis on life and call it the covenant of life. The Westminster refers to it as the covenant of works. And there have even been some, uh, not those who perhaps are uh, terribly steeped in Reformed teaching, but there have been some who have said that an overemphasis on covenants came into the Reformed churches and led to this kind of language, the covenant of works, an overemphasis that came from the rise of the business world in Europe many centuries ago and that business world with its emphasis on legal contracts and legal covenants between various parties led to this kind of teaching about a covenant, a contract of works or a contract of grace. Well, the place to start in evaluating this is at the beginning because the covenant of works refers to events that take place in the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2. And so we look at chapter 2, verses 15 and 17 to get some idea of those issues that are involved here. And we'll do that under four headings this afternoon. The promise, firstly. Secondly, the obligation. Thirdly, the warning. And then finally, the covenant. The promise, the obligation, the warning and the covenant. Firstly, the promise. And here I want to draw to your attention the... um, this uh, promise that was given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before the fall. And it is, as John Murray uh, emphasised, very much and essentially a promise of life. Our text doesn't state that, but it's very much in the background of our text. We see it, for example, in verse 9, the reference to the tree of life in the midst of the garden. And the point of that tree of life being in the midst of the garden was that it was symbolic of the fact that the whole garden itself, for that matter, was a place of life, watered abundantly by waters that gave physical life, four rivers, as we read in Genesis 2, verse 10, all of which was symbolic of the fact that nearness to God, as Adam and Eve were in the garden, God even is described as walking and talking with them, very close, personal and intimate that nearness to God, being in fellowship with him, with him in the centre, the centre of your garden, so to speak, him in the middle of your life, God with us, Emmanuel, that is the place of spiritual, physical and eternal life for man. Now, of course, after the fall, man can only have that life through the Redeemer. And therefore, Revelation 22, which is speaking about paradise restored the word paradise means a garden park the garden restored at the end of the bible has this vision of even more water more of the water of life and even more of the tree of life it's now lining the streets lining the street and with the lamb in the center of it telling us that the lord jesus christ is the water of life and the tree of life, what those things represent. He is the source of that, of physical, spiritual and eternal life, though at this stage in Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall, we're not yet speaking about the need of his redeeming work to bring that life back to fallen man. Here we're speaking about, very generally, 
about God being the source of that life, the triune God. For that reason, since the tree of life is symbolic of these great spiritual truths, some Reformed theologians speak of the tree as kind of sacramental. Now maybe that's slightly overstating the matter, but there is something in it at least that is very similar to a sacrament. And some speak of it as a sign and seal of the covenant of works. But it is a sacrament that cannot be eaten from the tree of life, that fruit, cannot be eaten until after Adam and Eve have demonstrated their obedience in not eating the fruit of the other tree. Because if they would do that, if they would take from either of those trees in the wrong way, they would be profaning that sacrament or something that is very similar to a sacrament by eating of it in their sin and rebellion, which would then confirm them in their unrighteousness. And that's one of the reasons that God gives for putting them out of the garden after they sinned, Genesis 3 verse 22, so that they don't reach out and take the, the tree from the tree of life. Well, along with the promise of life and blessedness comes also an obligation. Our second point. And there are, of course, the general obligations of the moral law, which is already operating in the Garden of Eden. Uh, man already, Adam, had a duty already in the Garden of Eden to love the Lord with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and all his strength. He had an obligation to work diligently, cultivate and keep the garden, command in verse 15, which means to serve in it and to look after it. And what is implied from that is that Adam and Eve were to observe the pattern of work and of rest and rest for worship, which is indicated in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And the work part involved cultivating the garden. Adam and Eve were also to love their neighbour as themselves. Uh, in this case, of course, Adam's only neighbour was Eve, and Eve's only neighbour was Adam. But they were also obligated to do that. And so when in Genesis 2, verses 23 and 24, we read about the uh, response of Adam to uh, having Eve uh, made by God uh, from his side, uh, that not only implies the seventh commandment, but also that love was not divorced from a love of neighbour. The two would go together. And if you want to read more on that, I can really recommend to you John Murray's Principles of Conduct, which shows how all of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, they're all present in seed form already in the creation ordinances in the Garden of Eden, before the fall. But in addition to that, we have here also a test commandment. That's what the word probation means. A probationary, a testing commandment. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. In other words, the Lord is so generous. He says to Adam and Eve, look around, you've got all these trees and you can eat from any of these trees. And it's also abundant. But there's one restriction. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And that was a, a test in order to bring out into the open what would live in Adam and Eve's heart at the time when they would face temptation from the devil. A harmless looking piece of fruit in a perfect world. What could be so wrong? 
What could be so bad about that? What could be so harmful in this perfect world? Well, the harmful thing is because God said no. Would Adam and Eve obey? Not because they could see the common sense in keeping away from that piece of fruit, but would they obey simply because God said so? Well, we know the answer to that. Now, there are many different explanations of the, the naming of this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit of the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why is it called that and what does that represent? Well, certainly not uh, the idea, there's no idea here that this is some kind of magical fruit which you can eat and automatically you'll get a boost in your intellect. This is like uh, uh, ginkgo biloba plus, that you eat this stuff and all your cognitive functions will suddenly be expanded. That's not the point here at all. Nor is the point some kind of myth, as many have said. Genesis 1 to 3 is not mythical. Genesis 1 to 3 is history. In fact, it's genealogical history. It's the history of the beginnings. And the fruit also, for that reason, is described as real fruit from real trees. Perhaps the best explanation that I've come across for this is that the tree, the tree represents the means that God put in place for man gaining a proper and a good knowledge of good and evil, which Adam and Eve could have had by saying no to that fruit at that stage. Had they said no, it would have arisen out of a proper understanding of good and evil. God has said no. Therefore, it is sinful for us to eat it. That is a proper and a good and a godly understanding of what that fruit symbolically represented, the difference between good and evil. So had they, uh, had they done that, had they passed that test, then many have argued that they would then have a more mature believing knowledge of good and evil in a godly way. And that then they would have been able to use that sacramental-like fruit out of their godly knowledge, just as they would have been able to use the tree of life and uh, done so out of godliness, uh, and all that that represented would then symbolically would also have been theirs, eternal life. But eating that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil at this stage, in disobedience, profaning that, resulted in the opposite, an ungodly knowledge of good and evil. So that is the choice. Don't eat it and grow in your godly knowledge of good and evil or eat it and give yourself over to ungodly knowledge of good and evil. Sinclair Ferguson uh, and others too have uh, also pointed out, and I, I, I guess this is one of those things that can be overplayed a little bit, and yet there's something in this, I believe, that uh, they have pointed out the wonderful symmetry between this and the choice that the Lord Jesus faced in going to his tree, the cross. That Adam and Eve were called to obey God by not going to that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not going in the wrong way, in sin. And uh, they were uh, not to go to that even though it looked harmless. Because they failed the Lord Jesus was called to obey his Father, also to obey, 
not by staying away, but by going to the tree of the cross, something that looked absolutely terrifying and as harmful as anything possibly can be. And I think there's something in that. And the Lord Jesus did that in order to give us the right, the privilege of the tree of life again, what it stands for, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the life and everything the tree of life stood for. As well as then, in the Lord Jesus Christ, having a godly knowledge of good and evil given to us. That's what we have already as Christians. We already experience in him a godly knowledge of good and evil. We don't always live to it, but we know what it is. What the tree of knowledge of God represents. We have that in Christ. Well, this prohibition was also followed by a strong warning. Our third point. Just as the prohibition was strongly worded, you shall not eat. And this is uh, in English grammar. Some of you may know, uh, normally you would say you will not do something, but if you want to make it very strong and emphasize it, you say you shall not. And that's the language that's used here. You shall not eat this very strong because if you do, you shall, very strong, you shall certainly die. And what's more, immediately, in the day you eat of it. So what happens in Genesis 3? They eat of that fruit against what God had said and their spiritual life, their fellowship with God ended, it died immediately, abruptly. And eternal life, that which they would have had if they had remained perfectly obedient to God, that eternal life was lost apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And physical death also began to kick in, kick in at that point. And not only for Adam and Eve, Adam was the head and representative of the human race, so death was immediately imputed to the whole race. Romans 5 talks about that from verse 12 forward. And passed on, inherited uh, also by their children, just as life had been promised to Adam and to his posterity if he had obeyed, as the Westminster points out in Article 2 in Chapter 7 and uh, Chapter 19, Article 1. Later, that, that death penalty, the eternal death, is spelled out more clearly in terms of the everlasting punishment of hell. And that is why the Lord Jesus, in going to his tree, to undo that, experience the agony of hell. As well as the physical death, he experienced that death being separated from fellowship with his father in his human nature as well. Now in this warning we see uh, that uh, uh, in a certain sense God cares more for us than we even do for ourselves. Uh, you know how it goes, the father shouts a warning to a child whose life is in danger. Maybe the child is running up to a busy intersection and not looking like they're going to stop and there's a big truck coming down the road and the father shouts out, stop, stop right now, stop, don't take another step. And a very urgent warning, very strongly worded and commanded but something that arises clearly in that context out of love. Well, the rebellious child maybe just chuckles, laughs gleefully and just keeps on running forward like nothing's going to happen. And maybe there's uh, some harm done as a result. 
Well, congregation, that's, that's the human race, that rebellious child. And even as God's people, we sometimes fail to see the urgency, the urgency that comes out so clearly in this language. You shall die. Uh, do not eat. Whatever you do, stop. The urgency of that. It'll happen immediately, these consequences. Uh, the, this is the urgency that we also sometimes forget. We choose to forget. And yet the penalty hasn't changed. The consequences haven't changed. Physical, spiritual and eternal death. The only way to avoid that is through the Lord Jesus Christ, the water of life and the tree of life. And what that means is that turning to him ought to be every bit as urgent and as vital to us as it would have been for Adam and Eve to stay their hand from taking out that, taking a piece of that forbidden fruit. Now I said before that the Old and the New Testament words for covenant don't really fit this pre-fall arrangement very well because the words imply the existence of sin and doubt and the curse of death in a situation where redemption is needed. Can we then speak of a covenant of works at all? as the Westminster Confession obviously does. Look at that in our fourth and final point, the covenant. And in answer to that, I'd like to point out two things. First, uh, I mentioned that there are these biblical words. And if you just went on them, on those particular words, two words, one in Hebrew, one in Greek, if you went on that basis, you might say, we cannot call this arrangement before the fall a covenant. However, the definition that the Westminster is working with, and many, many Reformed theologians throughout history have too, is a theological definition. It's one that arises uh, out of the general teaching in the Bible about the covenant of grace. And it leads to this definition that you may have heard, that a covenant is an arrangement between two parties involving promises and conditions. It's a very general definition. And it's also a definition that we can use to describe what's going on here before the fall. And that's why the Westminster Confession and the basis on which the Westminster Confession is calling this a covenant of works, using that theological definition. Second thing I want to point out is that biblical covenants tend to follow a certain pattern. And I mentioned this before a few times. Uh, it's a pattern that you find in ancient Near Eastern treaties. I said before, a covenant's a treaty in the Old Testament. That's what the word can mean. Uh, it's, uh, uh, a it's a practice that was found very commonly in various nations around Israel. That They had like a kind of a treaty form. You know, governments love forms and uh, bureaucracies love forms, so they have like a kind of a treaty form. And in these different countries, so many of them, the treaty form tended to be pretty much the same. And it appears that God took that practice and used it to make a, a, a great, some great truths, to bring some great truths to Israel. This treaty that was made between conquering kings and the conquered state to teach God's people that in a way that's what we are. We are God's conquered people and he is our great king. A very, very important thing for us to grasp. And so the form of these treaties was first they would state the king's name and his titles and the great 
deeds that he had done and then they would list his laws and then they would pronounce his blessings if the people would obey the laws and then they would pronounce the curses, the punishments, if the people would disobey those laws. And as I say, this is a pattern that God used in his covenants and often and it is a pattern that we find here. The name of the great king, Yahweh God, verse 16. His great and mighty deeds, his works, creating the whole world, walling off a particular part as a beautiful garden and putting man in that garden. His promise, his promises as the great conquering king, life in fellowship with God. The obligation that follows from that, that the king sets down, keep my moral law, cultivate my garden and don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The punishment, the curse upon disobedience to the great king, death. We can conclude then that in Genesis 1 and 2, the Lord actually puts all the elements of a covenant even though the Bible does not actually call it a covenant until later, until after sin comes in. And uh, that has to do with the word covenant also meaning an oath. So the oath from God, the promise is there from the start, but it only is turned into an oath later on, after the fall. And so we have these elements present, and in addition to that, uh, we can use that theological definition to describe that, and refer to a covenant of works in that sense. Now, some of us might be inclined to look at this as a bit of hair-splitting, but I want to suggest to you that the use of these elements of the covenant in the pre-fall situation and the changes that come after sin comes into the world, that those things are actually very important. Let me explain why. Before sin comes in, God uses these typical covenant elements to make it clear to his people, Adam and Eve, and us as we read about it, that he is the great king and we are his subjects. And that is, that is important every day of our lives that we think that way. In everything we're thinking and saying and doing, that we stop to remember that what we are thinking and saying and doing is as subjects of the great king who owe to him our creator and our ruler, absolutely all obedience. And putting those elements in here from those treaties with kings and their conquered nations reminds us of that truth. And not only so, it also makes us clear that this king is so great that when he promises something, he can surely deliver what he promises. And it reminds us that he is gracious to give rewards way beyond what Adam and Eve actually deserved, even if they would be 100% obedient, because they would only be then doing their duty. But God gives them such rich blessings, even beyond that. And it teaches us also that God is just to deal with any rebellion against, the, against himself, against the living God, even if it should be from the only two people on earth or all the people on earth, that he will deal with rebellion. And this is part of what's being said in the Westminster chapter 7, article 1, about God condescending. We don't call it a covenant of grace, and yet there is a graciousness of God that is revealed in it, that condescending to, to bless Adam and Eve far beyond what they deserve. The, the bounty 
of his giving. And then God also gives sacraments at that time, or things like sacraments, to reinforce those same truths, the two trees. After the fall, he adds to these elements an oath. He swears the promise that was already there in a way. He swears it on oath to give extra reassurance to a man who is now sinful and filled with doubts because he's a sinner. And he calls it a covenant, to, because the word means an oath-bound promise, he calls it a covenant to stress that very point. And in addition to that, he gives new sacraments, ones that we can definitely say are sacraments in the full sense. He gives in the Old Testament circumcision and Passover and in the New Testament baptism and Lord's Supper that focus on the fact that after the fall, man now also needs a redeemer in order to have the knowledge, the proper knowledge of good and evil, in order to have the life, in order to be forgiven of his sins, he needs a redeemer, the redeemer. And he calls it now also a covenant of grace to emphasize how much more grace is needed and how much more is displayed not only that uh, man is a finite creature who's getting blessed far more than he deserves, that's there already before the fall, but now in addition to that, man is a sinner who actually deserves death and yet he gets blessed in a way even more richly than Adam and Eve did before the fall in Christ. There are more and more abundance and richness and wealth in it, more and more display of God's grace through the Lord Jesus Christ and his redeeming work on the cross. This development of the covenants and of the sacraments, for that matter, teaches us all the more about the Lord Jesus Christ. It teaches us all the more about ourselves and our sin and more and more about the grace of God than we might otherwise notice. May it be then that as we consider these things, we learn these lessons well. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to remember that we are your covenant people to whom promises have been given and uh, promises that now have even been sworn on oath and who have also been uh, given the command to obey you and who have agreed, in fact, to the penalties for covenant breaking. Father, help us to see all of this from all of this that you have the ability to keep your promises and your oaths and that you have the right to give us laws and just punishments as our sovereign creator and ruler. But Father, help us also to see from the development of these covenants just how gracious and merciful you are, both in the fact that you bless us even when we just do our duty, but you also bless us despite our sins which contaminate every effort we make to fulfill our duty. Father, by this will you help us to be drawn again to the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. We pray it in his name. Amen. What is man that God should show such favour? 
as we see already in the Garden of Eden and see even more clearly revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ and the covenant of grace. Psalter Hymnal 12, verses 1 and then 4 to 7. We'll stand to sing. And would you please remain standing afterwards for the blessing and doxology. Number 12, stanzas 1 and 4 through to 7. After the blessing is our doxology, we sing from the Psalter Hymnal, number 469, stanza 3. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs> 